0: Hi everybody and welcome to the 21st episode of the RIT Podcast. Soon I'll be joined by Aaron Wary to set you up for next week's return of Parliament. But first let's get to some leadership news that's impacting both the United Conservative Party of Alberta and the Conservative Party of Canada. Aaron O'Toole is facing a revolt of sorts. At the beginning of the week, Saskatchewan Senator Denise Batters launched a petition calling for a leadership review. Under
1: Aaron O'Toole's leadership, the rift in our party is growing. He told us, this is not your grandfather's Conservative Party, and warned campaigning MPs they must agree 100% with his new direction, which constantly changes, or get out of caucus.
0: The goal was to get 5% of members in at least five provinces to sign the petition within 90 days, which would trigger a secret ballot referendum on O'Toole's leadership within 120 days of the threshold being met. Not long after batters launched this petition, the Conservative Party ruled it out of order that a petition like this could not spark a leadership contest. Then, on Tuesday night, O'Toole ejected Denise Batters from the Conservative caucus, and reports are that anyone who backs her will face the same fate. But it's also been reported by Global News that this is part of a multi-step campaign that goes far beyond Batters, so this is probably not the end of the story. In fact, this is a very fast-moving story, and between the time I'm recording this and the time you're listening to it, a lot might have changed. Speaking of which, the Alberta United Conservative Party is holding its AGM on the weekend. And there, too, the leader is facing an internal revolt. 22 constituency associations in the province are calling for a leadership review for Jason Kenney to be held before March 1st, rather than in April, as he had previously committed to. This comes after Kenney has faced criticism from both inside and outside his caucus, including from Brian Jean, the former Wildrose Party leader who is running for the UCP's nomination for the upcoming by-election in Fort McMurray-Lac-La-Biche. There might be some maneuvering going on to change the threshold from one quarter of ridings to one third, but we don't actually know if those associations wanting the early review already meet that second threshold. All we know is that at least 22 are calling for the early vote. So we'll have to see what's going to come out of all this and how the AGM unfolds. Last week, I briefly mentioned the splintering happening within the conservative movement across the country, but now we seem to be seeing it happen within parties too. Last week, I also talked to Theresa Wright about politics in Prince Edward Island, well, on Monday, voters cast their ballots in the Cornwall Meadow Bank by-election, and Mark McLean of the PCs captured 40% of the vote, a gain of just over 22 points since the 2019 general election. Jane McIsaac, the Liberal candidate, took 33% of the vote, down nearly 15 points, while Todd McLean of the Greens took 23%, down 10 points. This win for the PCs is a big one, as they last won an election in this part of PEI only in 1982. It also gives Dennis King's government a bit of a cushion, increasing their one seat majority to a two seat majority. I wrote about the results on Tuesday on the writ.ca, so you can check that out for more. On Monday, MPs will be finally returning to the House of Commons after two months have passed since the September federal election. The Liberals returned with a minority government, though there has been some talk of potential cooperation between the Liberals and the NDP. It means a new Parliament, a new throne speech, and the start of a third term for Justin Trudeau. Meanwhile, as mentioned earlier, the Conservatives appear to be a little distracted with their own internal affairs. To help set you up for the return of Parliament, I'm joined today by the CBC's Aaron Wary. Hey Aaron, how you doing? Hey, Eric, how are you? Um, so there's been a lot going on. And so my first question is a big one. Um, when it comes to Justin Trudeau's minority government, what does the PI by-election, what impact will that have?
1: <laughs> I mean, obviously, as PEI goes, so goes the nation. So I assume that the parties, the federal parties are poring over that data right now, trying to figure out uh, how to recalibrate their policies in light of how the voters in PEI have moved.
0: All right. Well, I'm glad you took that seriously. Um, okay, so... <laughs> So it is the return of Parliament next week. And uh, we'll get to maybe the Liberals and the New Democrats. But so uh, as a word of warning, we are recording this on Wednesday midday. And as we're recording it, the Conservatives are actually holding their caucus, um, which is minus one person, Denise Batters, who was booted from the caucus on Tuesday night. Now, we don't really know how this is all going to play out. So by the time you're listening to this, there might be some new developments. But generally speaking, do you think Aaron O'Toole is in a lot of trouble here? Um, he's definitely not in a little trouble. I mean,
1: this is, I don't know that this is like the end of him necessarily, or the beginning of the end, but, uh, anytime you have to toss a toss somebody at a caucus, uh, you know, because they challenged your leadership, it's, you're in a pretty tough spot. And I, do, I think it depends on how this plays now, whether this, this sort of solidifies his position because, uh, it sort of sends a message that he's not playing around and, and anyone who was going to support batters or, or was thinking of supporting batters kind of walks away or, or gets cold feet or whether this just emboldens everyone. Like It, it kind of feels like he wanted to accelerate the fight, the, con- the confrontation, like, OK, if you guys are going to come at me and you're going to do this petition and you've got this plan to drag it out for six months and, and new people are going to be popping up every couple of weeks, like, let's just do it right now. I'll toss batters out and and let's see if we can get this confrontation over with. And, you know, that could work out if he's, if he's got the numbers, if, the, if there really aren't that many people behind batters, then then maybe he's fine. But, he, you know, he may now find out that there are a bunch of people behind her, in which case he's in a lot of trouble.
0: Yeah, the, the reporting I last saw was something along the lines of 70 MPs. They have at least lined up that would vote to boot out anybody who was supporting batters. But that does still leave uh, nearly 50 MPs. And I mean, if there was some sort of revolt that that explodes uh, and a dozen of them were having to be booted from the party, I mean, at at that point, you have a full blown crisis going on. It's it's it is in a way it is a bluff that if they don't call it, he's he's in a good spot. But if 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 that bluff is called, I mean, that could be it. Right.
1: Yeah. Like it, it does feel like he's calling the bet. And you're right. Like it's it's not. This isn't a fifty plus one kind of situation, right? Like, it's not like, well, if he has half a caucus, he's fine. If he has less than like eighty percent of caucus, uh, he's in trouble, right? Like that, people start going, well, how we, how strong is your leadership? How, how can you possibly carry on? Uh, and it's just gonna, the, you know, even if he, you know, keeps going, like even if he manages to get through this, it's gonna be a rough patch because every time he steps in front of a microphone the first question is going to be about what's going on inside his caucus his is with parliament coming back the the big uh, you know in addition to the throne speech and everything else the next question is going to be how many conservative mps aren't going to show up to sit in parliament because they're not vaccinated you know he's got all these issues he's got to deal with and they aren't going to go away and uh, so maybe in that sense, it makes sense to sort of just uh, accelerate the, co- the confrontation and try to sort of get this over with. Uh, but it is a bet. It is a, it is a risky bet that he's got the numbers on his side.
0: This does seem like it's a bit more uh, confrontational and dramatic than with Andrew Shear. With Andrew Shear, it was more like some whispering in the background. It was some leaked things about, uh, you know, the uh, private schools and, and who was paying for it. Uh, this seems. This I don't remember it being as overt in 2019, but in a way, Aaron O'Toole is taking action. And if he does just snuff it out in the first couple of months, maybe he can hold on for a long time. But this does seem a little bit more dramatic than back in 2019.
1: It does. Like, it's, to my memory, at least, there was like an initial period of uh, all, all eyes on Andrew Shearer. Is he is he possibly going to be able to remain his leader? Is he the problem? And then it kind of quieted down, and then there was the the revelations about expenses and his, you know what he'd been doing with uh, party funds, and and that kind of blew up, and that was kind of it. Kind of quick, his end kind of came very quickly or all of a sudden. And this in with O'Toole, uh, I think there was like a bit of. I, I think I was a bit surprised that there wasn't an immediate rush to push him out in the first couple of weeks after the election. But now it seems like it's it's really building and moving. And it does feel like it's more of a of a, of a real fight between kind of people who want to stick with O'Toole and, and people who who maybe want to go in a different direction.
0: You wrote about this uh, uh, on the CBC website about the challenges that the Conservatives are facing, because while this is all about Aaron O'Toole, it is really more about an existential question for the Conservatives that, um, you know, he ran as someone on the right of the party, and then he campaigned as person who was on the left of the party. And there's that question about whether anybody can bridge that gap. And Denise Batters, who uh, I believe was supporting Peter McKay would have presumably been more on, you know, the side would have been happy to see this kind of campaign run by Peter McKay, but uh, getting to that question of authenticity and everything. But there are some bigger problems here for the Conservatives, whether or not Aaron O'Toole uh, remains his leader.
1: Yeah, there's sort of there's sort of two things going on here, right? One is that Aaron O'Toole uh, campaigned as, as one thing for the leadership race and then campaigned as something else for the general election. Uh, and that's there really isn't much of a tradition of that in recent Canadian political history. And, and he's sort of suffering for that now. But the other problem is that Uh, The reason he he the reason presumably that he 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 tried two different strategies here, is because the conservative party base and the conservative party, is is on one side of of many debates, and the general electorate is on the other. You know, on gun control, on vaccine mandates, on climate change. There's sort of a uh, a general consensus on the issues, and then there's a conservative view of things, and uh, figuring out how to do. How to, how to how to win the party and then win the general electorate, you know, that that challenge is going to be there no matter who they put in a, as leader. And they really do, I think they really are running up against kind of a, a, a roadblock where you can't, you maybe can't win the party leadership without being kind of a hard conservative, like a hard uh, doctrinaire conservative, and you can't win a general election without being a moderate. If that's the case, how do they win elections? And how does a how does a, a, a viable general election candidate ever win the party leadership?
0: Yeah, and I mean, there was some uh, conservatives who would say that the reason that the conservatives have been losing or lost under Aaron O'Toole is that, you know, if they run as a centrist party, then voters who are moderates will prefer the centrist party. But um, I'm not, sh- you know, I'm not sure if. If if it's as simple as that, right? Because a lot of the the PPC vote, for example, probably wasn't going to be voting for a conservative who was just slightly more to the right. Um, and I, I, you know, the liberals didn't run a particularly good campaign in this case, and the conservatives still just came up short. There's a, there's a lot of bigger questions here, and and you know, when you think about the Conservative Party throughout its history, it's always been this challenge of combining these different elements of the coalition. And they managed to do it for a couple of elections, you know, Brian Mulrooney got the West and nationalist Quebecers in the 80s, you had, you know, Diefenbaker, who was pretty much doing the same thing, but it all just kind of falls apart after a little while. So what is the lasting kind of recipe for the Conservatives in this if, you know, right. the, you know the parts of the party um, can't seem to hold on and stick together long enough uh, to win you know, more than an election?
1: Yeah, there's this funny, like, when you listen to what Denise Batters says about O'Toole, there's almost this suggestion that, oh, well, he went to the center, he became moderate, and that's why we lost. And, uh, that like, that doesn't, if that's the conclusion they come away with on this, I don't know that they're in a better position going forward. Like, I do think he has some liabilities in that, you know, his authenticity, you know, I know people may roll their eyes at that, but, like, his authenticity is gonna be questioned because of the, the kind of changing positions he's had on things. And so that may be a problem going forward with him in, in the next federal election. But I, I, don't, I just don't know if the conservatives can look at this and go, well, look, we tried carbon pricing and we still lost. So now we should go back to opposing carbon pricing. Like I, 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 that doesn't seem like a winning formula. That seems like the wrong way of reading this message. And it still seems to me that, that the, I mean, you would know the math better than me, but you know, they can lose 10 points uh, in Alberta so long as they make up, you know, five or 10 points in Ontario. Like they've still got more room to give up on the right than, than, than they have already. Like the trade-off seems still seems to be there that if you have to give up on the right to get Ontario and get Quebec and, and get Atlantic Canada, but that's still the better trade-off. That's still how the math works to get them back into
0: government. I mean, we'll see what happens with this. If they do get into another leadership race, um, you know, which direction the party's going to go. If Aaron O'Toole remains as leader, does he remain as leader saying, you know, we're we're continuing with this, with this approach, or are we going back to trying to be a bit more conservative to shore up the base? I mean, the idea of you know authenticity, And I agree with you like that. I think this is a big issue. And while it might seem like it's not a big issue, I mean, voters are smart enough, right? It's, you know, running to win a leadership one way and then running in a general election in another way might seem like this clever strategic ploy, but people can pick that up and it makes them wonder which of those was was true, right? Are you now, did you fool the the members to get the leadership or are you trying to fool me now to become the prime minister? I, I think that is... That is a bigger that is a specific issue for Aaron O'Toole, but it would become an issue as well for any other leader who tried to do this in order to win the leadership but run differently to win the general.
1: Right. I still think you know it's also possible, I think, here to overrate how much the leader necessarily matters. Like it's, it's, it's the conservatives, like the liberals kind of got into a situation between 2006 and, and 2012, 2013 where they just thought well if we just keep if we just change the leader like eventually we'll find the right one and and we'll break through and granted they did get lucky when they got a pretty singular candidate in Justin Trudeau and you you know most of a lot of what they accomplished in 2015 you can trace back to sort of who Trudeau is and his unique appeal but they also, their offer in 2015 was fundamentally different than what they'd offered in 2011 and 2008. Like their platform, their policy, their approach to, to things uh, had changed. They, you know, Trudeau came in and made some big moves about, you know, deciding the party was going to be strictly pro-choice, kicking senators out, uh, you know, promising to legalize marijuana focusing on the middle class, like the, it wasn't just that they changed leaders and that's how they got back into government. You do have to go back to kind of the first principles and figure out what your party's about and figure out where the electorate is and figure out how to get to your party to where the electorate is. And I just don't know that the conservatives have yet gotten to that, that, that part of the conversation.
0: Yeah, a lot of the discussion I've heard from conservatives who are supporting Aaron O'Toole uh, publicly have said, you know, that we need to focus on being a good opposition party. And that role is, you know, very important in our democracy. But at the same time, if you're a party trying to get into power and you're focusing on the opposition aspect rather than the offer to becoming a government, um, you know, I think that is also, you know, part of the problem that the conservatives do need to have a good offer in the next election, um, eventually you can win an election just by not being the government, right? Right. But right. that is not a long-term strategy <laughs> for success.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's you're right about the opposition thing too, right? Like the last op- last leader of the official opposition to become prime minister was Stephen Harper, uh, and we've had several now try their luck and, and fail. And you go back again to 2015. Everybody said, "Oh, Tom Mulcair is an excellent opposition leader. He's a really excellent opposition leader. He Has so much credibility. So strong in the House." And that didn't really seem to amount for much when it came to a general election because the Liberals had the better offer. So yeah, the Conservatives do need to be able to focus on being in opposition and, and hammering away at the the, the government. But uh, and you're right, you, you know, you will you will get a lucky eventually, and the, the incumbent government will wear itself out, and the public will want to change, and they'll they'll go for whoever happens to be around. But you you do have to go out most of the time. You do have to go out and actually win the election with something. Proactive and forward-thinking, and so you know, regardless of who the conservative, like whether it's O'Toole in the next election or another conservative, unless the conservatives can kind of deal with the fundamental questions uh, that go right through their party, uh, like they may they won't necessarily be in a in a better position if they switch
0: leaders. So uh, on the podcast, I, I take questions uh, from people. And there was one that I thought I'd actually bring up here because uh, it talks, you know, it's about these leadership things. This was from Christopher J, And he said, uh, would we ever see an Australian style leadership spill in Canadian politics where a caucus could appoint a leader? Do we have the mechanisms in party rules to do it? I think you and I have actually talked about this before, but in, in, uh, in Australia, the caucus can... And has <laughs> in, in uh, several times in, in just a every number six, of years
1: every six months or so. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think so. Um, they replace their leader, but the ca- it's driven by the caucus. We don't really have that here, but I think technically, because of the Reform Act, the Conservative Caucus, if they wanted to, could remove Aaron O'Tuill's leader, but he would still technically be the leader of the Conservative Party because there isn't the there isn't a mechanism within you know, the private organization that is the Conservative Party of Canada to follow what the parliamentary caucus says?
1: Yeah, there's sort of two, yeah, you're, you're dealing with two different things, right? You're dealing with caucus and you're dealing with the political party. I believe the, the caucus, I'd have to go back and you didn't prepare me for this question, Eric, so I didn't do my homework. I believe the Reform Act allows for caucus to appoint an interim leader. It might, I can't remember. But uh, so caucus could vote out a, could do a, a straight vote and get rid of O'Toole or, or declare him not to be the leader. I mean, at that point, it's kind of academic, right? Like if, if, yeah. if 50% of your caucus says you should go, uh, you're probably, you're part, the rest of the party is probably going to decide, yeah, you should probably step aside. Your, your position is probably untenable. Uh, it might get dragged out for longer than it needs to be and it might be more, pain, more painful for everyone. But, it, you know, it's sort of whether or not it's the caucus who officially votes you out or not, it's not necessarily the biggest distinction because one way or another, if, if you don't have the support, you're not going to be leader for very long.
0: Yeah. So the answer is uh, there's no real, it's not really a mechanism that exists in Canada, but in effect, it would have the same impact. But uh, yeah. we haven't really seen a lot of cases where the caucus is um, overturning a leader. It, it, I can't recall the last, well, I mean, there was, it happened with the bloc uh, not a couple of years ago. Um, right. But often the there was caucus this... kind of doesn't want to weigh in that much.
1: No, you're, you know, like it's, there was the Stockwell Day situation, but things have to get pretty dire for caucus to decide to to play the nuclear option. Uh, because again, like all the incentives sort of uh, are on the side of, of keeping everyone together and keeping everyone on side. Because, it, you know, even if you're a caucus member and you think your leader's terrible, you know that... Triggering a, uh, a leadership change or, or, or a confrontation is going to have ramifications for you personally within the party, but also going to have ramifications for your party to the rest of the country. And, and if the rest of the country thinks your party is a basket case, then your own chances of being elected aren't gonna, are going to suffer these things do happen. There will be points where the pressure internally or the, the disputes are too much and they force a party leader out, but there's a lot of incentive to kind of stick together and try to get it out, try to ride it out.
0: A lot of MPs or MLAs or whatever prefer to have someone else make that decision and at least yes. publicly. If the members can yeah. do it, it's better.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's a, of, there's a lot of like deferring. Well, if the, lead, if the party wants, if the members, the grassroots want to do this, then obviously we must listen to the grassroots uh, and nobody wants to sort of stick their neck out uh, for maybe obvious reasons. I mean, we'll see in the current situation now, now that Aaron O'Toole sort of drawn a line in the sand uh, like, okay, well, you know, how many people want to get up and stand up and say, I side with these Batters." It's, it's time for Aaron O'Toole to go. Uh, we, we will, it's a bit of a test of courage at this point.
0: Uh, so let's move on to the, uh, you know, the other parties in the House, including the governing in the House party. House? Yes, yes, they're less interesting, though. Um, <laughs> so we're going into uh, Parliament returning. There'll be a throne speech. There was this this discussion about the Liberals and the New Democrats potentially working together in some informal or formal way to make Parliament work. Uh, Aaron O'Toole started talking about a coalition, which was never really on the table. And, and Jagmeet Singh said, no, we're not going to do a coalition, despite no one offering that to him. Um, but from what I can see, that it doesn't seem like that has gone much further than just some discussions, and I guess they'll play it out from vote to vote as usual.
1: I do suspect that there were conversations, and it came up, and it was it was sort of floated and considered on both sides, and may, may, maybe they're still considering it. But it's not, you know, the comparison point is two thousand and eight when the Liberals and the NDP actually did form a coalition, okay. uh, tried. Yes. Uh, They, they, they put, at least put something in writing. Um, uh, But in that case, so there was a couple of things. One is like, if you look at how that came together, there were negotiating teams and all sorts of back channel conversations and they were sitting down and hashing out terms and uh, there was lots of back and forth. And it was very, um, uh, it was very formal, really. There were, there were distinct negotiating teams on, on each side and, you know, there was lots of, uh, they they were getting down to dis- dis- discussing very specific terms. And so that hasn't happened in this case, which suggests that it's not very far along. And the other thing that's different about 2008 now is that there was a, uh, it was time sensitive, right? They needed to move fast because they, uh, <laughs> they thought they were only going to get one shot at Harper. They never even got that shot. But you know, they needed to move fast to try to replace the government that was in office. And in this case, there really isn't a, an impetus to move fast and get something done. And so I think it's possible that this plays out longer and that, you know, it, you know maybe discussions sort of happen, they see how things play out, and then maybe they come to some terms later. But it doesn't feel like there is a big rush to get something done right now, or that they're, they are even so far along that they're down to those terms. I mean, I do think eventually, either for these two parties or for two parties in the future, it's going to make sense to do something like this. But it's not quite clear that we're quite at the point where everybody wants to admit that this would be a, a smart way to do things or a better way to do things.
0: Right, and also if, if we are, as uh, I think you've written about too, in an era where minority parliaments are more likely, it might take a few more before the parties realize that we do need some sort of mechanism to make this work rather than just to have this, you know, white knuckling it for a couple of years just to avoid an election. And I mean, yeah. in this case, the liberals don't really need to do this. Um, it would have it would have made things easier for them in the House. Maybe they could have gotten some more helpful committees and get things passed through the House a bit more quickly. Um, but uh, I, 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 from the NDP's perspective, how much were they really going to get that they probably aren't going to already get anyway? Because there's not that much difference uh, between the NDP and the Liberals on the on the things they agree about.
1: Right. Yeah. The it's it's that's the piece that I find hardest to figure out just in the hypothetical is, is the NDP would have to, I think, would want to come away with one or two things that they can say, oh, the liberals wouldn't have done that if not for us. Like, that's a distinct thing where we got the liberals to do something. And I don't know what the liberals would be willing to give them exactly. You know, on some of the some of the issues like a wealth tax, pharmacare. The kind of they don't, they don't feel like something that the, the liberals necessarily want to go okay we'll change our position we'll change our approach and we'll give it to you right now and and we'll do exactly what you want and so i don't know that so i don't i i can, I can see the liberals sitting back and telling themselves ah we don't really need to do this you know one way or another one of these parties is going to be they're willing to support us or willing to stand down and we'll continue to advance our agenda and the ndp can say yeah, there's probably not enough in, in it for us, you know. There's a lot of debt. There's some risk. You know, if if we get into a deal with the liberals, it might, you know, we might end up looking kind of irrelevant and that we don't matter, and that you know the liberal liberals may get all the credit for whatever gets done over the next few years. And meanwhile, you have the conservatives saying, "Oh, look, the coalition's back, and and it's they're going to spend us into the poorhouse, and and uh, you know this kind of this kind of backroom dealing is bad." So like it doesn't it it feels like there's still lots of maybe reasons to be hesitant about doing a deal, but as you said like I, I do think if we are in a minority parliament era if we are going to have minority parl- minority governments for the foreseeable future or that they're going to be the rule rather than the exception, the sort of white knuckling week to week day to day are you going to throw out force an election are you going to force an election what are you going to do vote against us. You know, that kind of daring, the the game of chicken that goes on throughout minority parliaments traditionally, I just don't think it's sustainable. And I think at some point, you know, parties and the public are going to have to kind of cross the threshold and realize that, you know, making formal agreements and ensuring that parliament functions for two or three years or four uh, just, you know, just makes sense. And the kind of constant turmoil isn't really good for anybody.
0: I, I, we'll have to see, I suppose, how this one works out, right? If if it is a, a dysfunctional parliament, then then maybe that'll be the lesson that the parties might draw from it. If it works okay, maybe you know they continue this way. For the NDP, you know the results from the election weren't as good as they would have could have been, or as as they would have liked. But I do think they got some mileage out of the. The notion of if we weren't there, the liberals wouldn't have done this. So I think they got something out of it in a way that maybe if they were like in a liberal uh, Lib Dem kind of situation, like with the uh, coalition that happened in the UK, that maybe it would have been a harder sell. But maybe that's where they're coming from, that uh, that that is a more effective line than just being a junior quote unquote partner.
1: Yeah, the, I mean, the thinking is, generally speaking, right, the junior partners kind of end up suffering at the next election because they don't get any of the credit for any of the things that get done. I, w- I would wonder, though, whether there would be a way for the NDP to do this and come away with uh, a bit more credibility as a party that can govern. You, you know, it's you can, I don't know that you can draw a straight line and, and uh, from what happened in Ontario, but in Ontario in 85, the Liberals and the NDP make a deal. And uh, the Liberals are the bigger party, so the NDP is the is the third party, just uh, as they are, or well now I guess maybe the fourth party. But the, the NDP is the junior partner, quote unquote, in the in that deal in '85. And the Liberals in the next election, David Peterson's Liberals do get all the credit and they win a majority. But then when David Peterson uh, makes the mistake of calling an early election, it's the NDP that goes back goes into government next, and that's the only time that the NDP has ever governed in Ontario. And so I would wonder whether, you know, the experience of seeing the the NDP have a hand in government in 85 helped make the case for them down the road. And I would wonder whether the NDP, given where they are right now as sort of being that, only not really even arguing that they should be government so much that they should just be kind of a a presence. I wonder if finding a deal would help them kind of make the case that they're credible and, and capable of governing in the future.
0: Uh, For the Liberals, so they'll have a throne speech, which I guess the last one was just about a year ago. Are you expecting anything very different from what we saw from the Liberals in the spring or before the election? Or is this going to be a continuation kind of thing?
1: I don't think so. I mean, the the, the Liberals haven't done it, the Trudeau government has done a ton of throne speeches, but when they have done them, with the exception of the sort of immediate post pandemic one, they've kind of been fairly straightforward, right? Like here's what we promised to do during the campaign. Uh, And here's what, so, you know, now we're going to do them. Uh, And so I don't know that there's going to be a bunch of uh, big surprises in the throne speech that they're going to start throwing new promises out there, especially because they've, they've already got a lot of things they need to do. Uh, I suspect this will be a fairly straightforward uh, recitation of what they promised in the campaign and and what was still left to do from the last parliament. So, so not, maybe not the most exciting throne speech, as, as exciting as throne speeches are ever. Yeah, uh, on a scale of
0: zero to 10, throne speeches are maybe a two. Uh, so you're saying this yes. one might be a one.
1: This might be, yes, one of the least exciting, less exciting. Uh, but, you know, like, I, I just don't know that they, they have so many things they need to do. There are bills that didn't get through the last parliament. There are commitments they made in 2019 that they couldn't get to because of the pandemic. And now there's a whole new platform in 2021 that they have to implement which again, makes the case for trying to find some stability in this parliament. But uh, I don't know that they, <laughs> I, I don't think it would be particularly wise for them to be. And now here's a bunch of new ideas that we didn't even promise in the election that we're also going to do. They, they just aren't in a position to start promising new things. They they have a, a laundry list of things they still have to get through.
0: Well, unless they decide they need to react to the PC win and PI and that by-election, right. maybe they'll have, have to move-
1: we have heard the people of Prince Edward Island, and here is how we shall respond. Uh, yes, it's possible. It's very possible.
0: All right. Well, that's something to watch. All right. Well, thanks very <laughs> much, Aaron. Forty-fourth uh, Parliament starting on Monday, and uh, we're expecting fireworks. Probably not in the house, outside the house, as uh, the Conservative Party goes through a little bit of a little bit of a time,
1: a little bit of a turbulence.
0: Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Thanks, Eric. All right, let's get to the questions. I had a few on Twitter. Jeff Hitchcock, what effect do you think the People's Party of Ontario on Ontario's electoral landscape will be? Now, we don't know exactly what vehicle the People's Party of Canada will be using during the provincial campaign. As I mentioned, uh, Randy Hillier seems to be running for the Ontario First Party. There's been a number of attempts to try to register the name of the People's Party of Ontario, or a variation of that, with Elections Ontario, but these attempts have been rejected because there's another party that is the People's Choice Party or something similar to that, and Elections Ontario doesn't want to have multiple parties with similar names. Uh, So we'll see whatever it's going to be, but there will definitely be a Purple Party, if we can call it that, in the Ontario election uh, in June. So what will the effect be? Well, the People's Party of Canada did pretty well in Ontario. They got just over 5% of the vote. But what's really significant about what the People's Party did in Ontario is that in certain areas, they were quite popular. In some areas, they got more than double digits, particularly in southwestern Ontario, in the rural parts of southwestern Ontario, but also in some of the cities like Windsor, They did pretty well in Kitchener-Waterloo. They did okay in London, uh, in the Niagara Peninsula. Will the PPC offshoot, whatever it is, in Ontario have an impact? I think it certainly will. Now, by the time the election rolls around in May, June, maybe vaccines and uh, the mandates around vaccines might not be as big of an issue. Uh, There has already been discussion from the provincial government that they would remove the requirement to be vaccinated to go to restaurants and things like that as early as January. If that does happen, and other things are removed, like in March, when they have suggested they could uh, remove the requirement to wear masks indoors, uh, then maybe the impetus for the PPC's success will go away. But I do think that there is going to be, at the very least, a chunk of the vote Uh, that went with the PPC in the last election, that will stick with that kind of party in a provincial election. Will it have a big impact? I don't know. If it does take 3%, 4%, or as much as the PPC did, uh, this could be a bit of a problem for the Ontario Progressive Conservatives, because in a lot of the areas where the PPC did pretty well, the Ontario NDP will be struggling to win some seats from the PCs. And they will get a lot of help in some of these areas if the PCs are dropping by three, four, five points, maybe as many as 10 in some of these ridings. So in the Niagara area, in southwestern Ontario, there's a lot of ridings that are primarily orange-blue fights, and they were before the breakthrough for the Ontario NDP in 2018. So if a little bit of that vote is peeled off to the Purple Party, whatever it is, that could probably help the Ontario New Democrats. We should remember that in 1990, when Bob Rae's New Democrats won The provincial election there. There was the Family Coalition and there was also um, the Confederation of Regents parties. These were two uh, populist parties that sucked away some of the PC vote and was something that helped uh, the New Democrats in that campaign. So um, I think that they will have an impact but I'm not convinced it'll be all that much bigger or even bigger than what the PPC had on the federal campaign and their impact there was relatively limited. I think that for Doug Ford and the Ontario PCs. The next campaign is shaping up to be a bit of a challenge for them, but one that they can still win. The question is whether they can be reduced to a minority or if one of the opposition parties can really galvanize the anti-Ford vote. But they won't have a huge margin for error. If the PPC Ontario version manages to get some of the vote and it drops the Ontario PCs down to the 33 34 35% range, Uh, Then a majority government's almost impossible for the PCs to win, and the opposition parties will be off to the races. We don't know what would happen in a Ford PC minority scenario if Andrew Horvath or Stephen Del Duca of the Liberals would be willing to keep that government afloat. Stephen Lee asks, what impact do you think municipal parties would have in Toronto or other Ontario cities? So we just had some elections in Quebec, and the municipal elections in Quebec in a lot of areas, not in every city, but in uh, the big cities especially, there are political parties. Valérie Plante, who won the Montreal mayoral election, is from the Projet Montréal party. It's actually one of the older parties in Quebec, um, in Montreal. A lot of the parties there kind of spring up as vehicles for a particular mayoral candidate. Um, but in that case, that's actually a party that has some some history behind it. What would the impact be in Ontario? I think the only impact is that for a lot of voters, they don't really know much at all about their municipal candidates. There was a paper that was done uh, by a number of academics, including uh, Alexandre Blanchet. Um, I wrote about it for the CBC a few years ago, and I thought it was just a funny story. They did a, a study of how people were voting in municipal elections. And the conclusions were that people have very few cues about who to vote for. The political parties, what they actually do at the federal and provincial levels is that they help clarify things for people. I know that some people don't like parties and think that we should just have, you know, independence or vote on based on the candidate. But for a lot of people, they need that help. They need that cue that if you stand for the New Democrats, that means you generally have this worldview. If you are a liberal candidate, then I can I kinda know what policies you're going to be backing. In municipal campaigns, often people don't have those cues, so they don't really know that much about the candidates, particularly when we're talking about the councillor level or you know, school trustee or these kinds of things. People really don't have any clue, and they might just vote based on the name. And that is actually one of the other conclusions from this paper, is that it found that your position on a ballot, which is based on, alphabet- uh, on your last name, alphabetical, will have an impact, that it's better to have a name that is near the top of the list or at the bottom of the list rather than in the middle. So if your last name starts with an A or a Z, you're more likely to get some votes than someone who is stuck in the middle of this clump of names that people don't recognize. Uh, So what impact would it have? I'm sure there would be some other impacts, but the biggest impact might be that for a lot of people, it would give them the cues to actually know who to back in a municipal election. They could vote a, a ticket from a party, more or less, rather than choosing from names that they might not have ever heard of. I got two of these questions about uh, what's going on in Alberta. And I, I, I thought it should be something I addressed here. There was a Ryan and David Carpenter. They both asked a variation of this. Would Jason Kenney really, really call an early election just to stop Brian Jean? There was some speculation. I'm not sure where I saw this. Might have been on Twitter. Uh, that Jason Kenney would be so opposed to Brian Jean replacing him as leader of the United Conservative Party that if he thought that's what things where things were going to be headed, he would just blow it all up call an early election, even if it meant that his party would be booted from government, at least it would mean that Brian Jean wouldn't get control of the party and become the premier. I mean, it sounds like baseless speculation. It sounds kind of wild. I mean, Alberta politics have been a little wild the last little bit. So, you know, I suppose anything's possible. Uh, But it would be quite, quite a nuclear option for Jason Kenney. It would probably mean a huge revolt within his party, And it would almost certainly mean the New Democrats would win the election. So I don't think he would actually be considering it. Maybe he would consider threatening it. um, But doing such a thing would be just as bad in terms of his own political future as allowing the party to boot him out as leader. So uh, it's hard to imagine that something like that could actually happen. And Raph Olivier, he asks, what will Canadian politics look like in 2040? Well, there'll be lots of discussions about the redistribution of the seats on the moon and whether we should be able to vote, you know, via hovercraft. But, um, you know, this was a, I assume this was a bit of a joke question. I I can't predict what's going to happen in 19 years, let alone 19 days. But let's take it actually kind of seriously. So 2040, 19 years from now, where were things 19 years ago in 2002, federally? Uh, Jean Chrétien was still the prime minister. The Liberals were leading in the polls by gargantuan margins. His leadership was a little bit under threat from Paul Martin's crew, but he was well-ensconced, and the discussion in the media at the time was that the Liberals were going to be running Canada forever. With the political system the way it was developing, they would never lose an election. The right was divided between the Progressive Conservatives and the Canadian Alliance. Um, Joe Clark uh, was the leader of the PCs again. Stephen Harper... Uh, was the uh, leader of the Canadian Alliance. The New Democrats were still under the leadership of Alexa McDonough, and the Bloc Québécois, well, it wasn't really clear what was going to happen to them. They also seemed to be losing a little bit of their pertinence. It does show you how a lot can change in 19 years. Obviously, the Liberals are no longer a, a behemoth, a hegemon that wins election after election, though they are still in power. There is no longer these Creccian versus Martin fights, on the conservative side um you know the parties are merged maybe that will continue to work and maybe it won't i mean there there is some question about that currently right now of course uh, the bloc quebecois is no longer a party that is really all that focused on sovereignty though it is of course still one of their issues uh, but they become much more of a regionalist party and might have some success with that the ndp uh, is definitely different than what it was 19 years ago though it might be in the same position What could politics be like in 2040? Well, they could look a lot different, but a lot of it could also look pretty recognizable. Also, last week I had a question about the number of mail ballots that were received by Elections Canada after the deadline to be counted. So I sent the question to Elections Canada, and they are still compiling these numbers. They did get back to me. The spokesperson said that Elections Canada typically reports on the number of late special ballots in the CEO's statutory report to Parliament. The report must be published within 90 days of the return of the writs, so we should expect to see it in early 2022. So we will have an answer here. We will know how many ballots were received late in most elections, It would have been a very small number because not a lot of people voted that way but in this election a lot of people did vote by mail so it could be a big number Uh, we'll have to wait and see so stay tuned for that and when the numbers do come out i'll definitely have them here on the podcast And that'll be it for the podcast this week. Thanks again to Aaron Wary for joining me earlier. And remember to head to the website, therit.ca, to read all my latest analyses as well as the Weekly Writ, my newsletter about all the latest election news, polls, and political history. My Every Election Project, which I'll get back to now and then on the podcast, uh, that's more of its home now. The Weekly Writ comes out every Wednesday. And thanks to those of you who took me up on my call last week to subscribe to my YouTube channel. I did get a few of them. I'd like some more. Please do it if you can. And uh, if you have done it, then thanks again. All right. So have a good weekend. If you're out in British Columbia, you know, stay safe. And uh, thanks for listening.
1: All right. Okay, you're good. Oh, wait, hold on. Let me turn my cuckoo clock off.